Well, I would like to invite you to take your Bibles and join me in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 6. Yes, that is correct. Verse 8 through 8, 3. The title of our sermon this morning is The Tipping Point, and the key words for our worshipers in training are grace, speech, and, no, spirit, speech, and reject. We've got a long passage, so let's get right to it. Acts is all about the coming of the kingdom of God in the person of Jesus Christ. In Acts 1a, Jesus had told His apostles that they were soon to receive the Holy Spirit and so be given strength to bear witness to His resurrection. That witness would start in Jerusalem, it would extend out into the regions of Judea and Samaria, and it would go all the way to the ends of the earth. Then in Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost... Uh, about 50 days after the death of Christ, Jesus poured out His Spirit, having been resurrected from the dead and raised to the right hand of God. He poured out His Spirit upon the church there in Acts chapter 2. And in every chapter since, we have seen the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man moving toward a head-on collision. And in particular, this has very important implications for the temple, which comes to the fore in our text today. Right In Acts chapter 2, when Jesus poured out His Spirit upon the church, He indicated very plainly that the dwelling place of God was not to be understood to be connected in any way with a physical temple, but it was located in Jesus Christ and to all whom He chose to give His Spirit. That was what we saw in Acts 2, and this theme is worked out in Acts chapters 3-5, through where the apostles are in continual conflict, in particular with temple leadership. They receive immense persecution from them. Uh, Or not immense, it becomes immense. It's that Peter and John are arrested, and all the apostles are arrested and beaten before finally released. And it all comes to a head there at the end of chapter 5, where they are almost murdered. The Sanhedrin almost murders the apostles, but then they decide to let them go. They beat them. They charge them to stop speaking in the name of Jesus. In order, the apostles joyfully ignored, choosing to obey God rather than man. And last week in chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, We saw leadership in the church established over the new people of God, where the apostles um, established formal processes by which the spiritual and physical needs of the people were to be met. The twelve apostles and the seven appointed table servers, as they were called. They were tasked with overseeing the spiritual and the physical needs of the churches, of, of the people of God in the church whom they served. And in our passage today, we see one of those seven men, Stephen. Um, He he comes to the, the front of the picture, and the result is a conflict with the religious leaders, in particular, a conflict over the temple. And the conflict is of such a magnitude that nearly the entire church 
flees Jerusalem into the surrounding regions of Judea and Samaria. And so we have a, a lengthy passage to read, but it, it's, I think, just very important to do it all together here rather than to try to break this up. And so we're going to read from uh, Acts chapter 6, verse 8, all the way to 8, verse 3, and then I will outline the sermon and we'll get to work. This is what Luke writes. Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, of the, Cyren- the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians, and of those of Sicilia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard from him. We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at them, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length. He promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others, who would enslave them and afflict them for 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave them the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all of his affliction and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him rule over Egypt and over all his household. Now there was a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had brought, bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt, until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants. 
so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And, he was ex- and when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. And he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. But they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now when forty years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for forty years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, who do not know what has become of him, And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god Rephan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon." Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what kind of or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff necked, uncircumcised, you stiff necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. So do you. 
which, is, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You have received the law as delivered by angels, but you did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged. They ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. I don't know if that was harder to read or to hear, but we got through it. So there's four things, and I promise uh, it's, there's so much that could be said here. What I'm doing today is this is the point of these verses. So uh, I, I, I thought it was important not to get bogged down in good and important details. There's other times for this, but as we go through this, why this speech, why this is here. So four things to see to make that, and this is the movements of the text. In verses 8 through 15 of chapter 6, we see Stephen's seizure or his arrest. Then in um, verses 1 through 53 of chapter 7, we see his speech, secondly. Then um, third, in chapter 7, 54 through 60, we see Stephen being stoned. And fourth, in chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, we see it all leads to the outbreak of widespread persecution against the church, which brought about the scattering of the disciples of Jesus into the regions of Judea and Samaria. So, the seizure of Stephen, the speech of Stephen, the stoning of Stephen, and the scattering of the church are the four hooks to hang everything on, and Lord willing, it will all make one important, cogent point. So, look with me in the first place then, verses 8 through 15, chapter 6, where we see Stephen seized by the authorities. Last week, we saw Stephen was a man that was full of the Holy Spirit and of faith in verses 3 and 5. Today, we see further that he was full of grace and power in verse 8 and wisdom in verse 10. And the emphasis of all of it is that he was a man full of the Holy Spirit. Four times by my count in this passage, Uh, Luke tells us that Stephen was full of the Spirit. Verse 3, verse 5, verse 10, and then at the end in verse 55. This is the kind of man that the religious authorities arrested and murdered. A man full of the Spirit. Luke tells us in these opening verses here that there were some folks who 
from various groups had begun to dispute with Stephen. They attempted at first to take him on directly, but they failed, and so they stirred up liars who would speak falsehoods against him. They accused Stephen, just as they had done with Jesus, of blaspheming God by speaking against the temple and against Moses and against the law. Now these charges, we should note, are utterly false. They are, as I said, the same charges trumped up against the Lord Jesus. But it's helpful for us to note what these charges are here, that he was blaspheming, namely the temple and the law, because it helps us to understand Stephen's speech. There's a lot of debate about Stephen's speech. Some say he just is like rambling with no point and then just loses it at the end and gets himself killed but really if you pay attention to what he is doing through this lengthy speech the longest in the book of acts he is addressing their charges head on but you could say he he flips the script on them at the end and before we look at his speech i I want to to see what Luke says, especially about him in verse 15 here. He says, He was brought before the council, and as they gazed at him, what did they see but that his face was like the face of an angel? John Stott makes a salient observation about this verse. He says, It is surely significant that the council, gazing at the prisoner in the dock, should see his face shining like an angel's. For this is exactly what happened to Moses' face when he came down from Mount Sinai with the law. Was it not God's deliberate purpose to give the same radiant face to Stephen when he was accused of opposing the law as he had given to Moses when he received it? So, from the outset, before we hear a word from Stephen in his defense, God speaks definitively about his man. God has laid down his stamp of approval on both Moses' ministry and Stephen's interpretation of it. And so from the get-go, we see God is not opposed to Stephen. Stephen is not opposed to God. But it is the, the, the temple authorities who are opposed to Stephen and to his God. We see Again, from the beginning, we've said this a few times throughout Acts, we see how much the darkness hates the light. They, are not, they don't seem to be affected in any way by this man's glowing face. Sure, the man's face is, looks like an angel's. He's a man full of the Spirit, a man full of faith, full of grace, full of power and wisdom, but no matter, we need a conviction because he has gotten in our way. And so, that is the arrest, the seizure. Look with me, secondly, at his speech, which takes up most of chapter 7. The high priest, who only contributes basically one thing to this whole conversation, asks Stephen, is it true? He asks him to give an account of these charges of blasphemy against the temple and the law. And so what Stephen does is he responds by summarizing four major epics of Jewish history to make essentially one point in the whole speech. 
He summarizes these four things, which we'll look at briefly, to make this point. He says, the temple and the law were good, but neither was an end in itself, but pointed instead to the Messiah. Whom, by the way, you guys killed, he says. The law, the temple, they were good. But they were not ends in and of themselves, but they pointed forward to Christ, whom his Stephen's detainers had arrested. So I want you to see this. There's a lot of things we could mention. I'm just going to try to draw out the highlights from each of these four movements. First, in verses 1-8, through eight, who does Stephen highlight but Abraham and the patriarchal age? And what the, the point of these eight verses is that God pledged himself to a people long before there was a specific place, the temple, where the people should go to worship. His point is that God had no problem venturing into the land of the Chaldeans to call Abraham to come and to follow him. So that's the first movement. He talks about Abraham and God's presence with him before the existence of the temple. Second, in verses 9-16, through 16, he makes the same point with Joseph. So you have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob's son, Joseph, and his brothers. Right? He talks about them in the Egyptian exile. And in verse 9, note what he says. That even while Joseph was in Egypt, a slave in Egypt, God was what? With him. Third, in verses 17 through 43, in a lengthy discussion regarding Moses and the wilderness wanderings of of Israel after God redeemed them out of Egypt 400 years later after Joseph, Stephen not only makes the same point regarding the temple, perhaps most clearly seen in verse 33, where he tells him, take off the sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Wherever holy ground was, wherever God revealed himself to be. He doesn't need a temple. He not only makes that point, but he demonstrates his love for the law. He quotes Amos favorably. Amos 5, 25-27. He quotes that in verse 42, where Amos uh, accuses Israel of their, really, their disdain for the law. Their disdain for Moses. In these verses, in this longer section here in 17 through 43, uh, Stephen makes the point before, during, and after the, the tabernacle and the temple were built, God moved about freely in relation to his people wherever they were, wherever he called them to go. In short, the point is this wherever God chose to reside was sacred space. Fourth, then, under this second heading in verses 44 through 50, Stephen concludes with the establishment of the monarchy under David and Solomon. And the point here, very similar to what we've seen already, is not to condemn the tabernacle and the temple. He says both were designed and built according to the will of God. Both were the place that God had chosen to, to manifest his presence and his glory with Israel. And yet, As we see in the the quote from Isaiah 66, there in verse 48, he makes emphatically clear that the obsession with the physical temple that had plagued 
Israel that plagued the Sanhedrin, it was completely out of line with what the Old Testament had taught about the temple. God's gracious condescension to dwell with man in the temple was just that. It was a gracious condescension. It was not some necessary constraint upon the Lord. He does not, he, he cannot be imprisoned in houses made by hands. And so that's, that's the point of all of it. All throughout all four movements, he wants us to see God goes where he pleases. And then he flips it. He flips it on them. He set them up. And in verses 51 through 53, he makes a turn. He makes explicit what he's been implying all along. He accuses his detainers of being stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, who always resist the Holy Spirit. These are the first two especially terms used of Old Testament Israel, often by the prophets. The prophets regularly call, they, they referred to, they condemned Old Testament Israel because of their uh, hardness of heart, their stiff necks, and their, their, their resistance to God. And he says to, to this, the folks before him, the council, he says, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed all those who came before, proclaiming the Holy and Righteous One. And he says, and you, following in their footsteps, have betrayed and murdered him. And so he concludes this. You want, he says, okay, you want me to answer your question. What do you say to these things about blasphemy against the temple and against the law? He says, you want to accuse me of blaspheming God, profaning his temple and slandering his law? He says, look at yourselves. He tells them, following in the footsteps of your fathers who rejected the law and Moses and profaned the temple, you rejected and killed the holy and righteous one to whom, the, to whom both the temple and the law and all the prophets pointed. You received the law, he says, delivered by angels, but you did not keep it. So that's his seizure, that's his speech, and now we see where they stone him in verses 54 through 60 for our third point this morning. And here we have arrived at the tipping point. This conflict that's been brewing between the people of God and the the religious leaders of the day, it, it comes to a culminating moment here in this section. He says, after accusing them of being the ones who profane the law in the temple, he says, and behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And at that, they, all, they wanted to murder him before that, In verse 54, they were enraged, they ground their teeth at him, but then he says that, and they absolutely lose it. They erupt. They cry out with a loud voice. They form a mob. They drag him out of the city, 
and they stone him to death. Now, why was it that that statement was so offensive? What was it about seeing and saying that he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God? Why was that so offensive? Why was that the thing that pushed them over the edge? Well, here's what I think it is. Go go back with me in your mind from this moment in Acts 7 to what would have been several months at this point prior. In Luke 22, Jesus is on trial. Listen to verses 66 through 71 and see if you hear any similarities. See if you hear any differences to what what we read in Acts 7 here, specifically in that, that last statement from Stephen. This is what Luke writes in Luke 22. When day came, the assembly of the elders and of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes. And they led him, Jesus, away to their council. And they said, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. It was with those very words that they condemned Jesus. Members of this same group who were now questioning Stephen had questioned Jesus. And they had been given a very similar response by Jesus as Stephen says now. Jesus said they would see the man, that they would see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power of God. And now Stephen claims to see him. And it's important to understand the claim that Jesus makes and the claim here that Stephen confirms. Back in Acts chapter 2, at Pentecost, when Peter preached his Pentecost sermon after the Spirit came, he said that Jesus' resurrection and exaltation to God's throne was the fulfillment of Psalm 10, where God promised His Messiah that He would sit at His right hand until all His enemies were made His footstool. It was also a fulfillment of Daniel 7, where the Son of Man came to the Ancient of Days to sit on His throne. The Son of Man, seated at the right hand of the power of God, is an image of a king ruling and judging His enemies from His throne. Jesus says, foretells, and Stephen sees the king seated on His throne. He sees this image of power, of rule and might. In other words, what is so offensive about this? Stephen sees their worst nightmare. The resurrected, exalted, and ruling Son of Man whom they had recently murdered. He sees Him on His throne. Reigning as King. Now, there is a difference. Jesus said you the Son of Man will be seated on His throne, but that is not what Stephen says. That is not what he sees. He sees the Son of Man standing at His throne. There's various, numerous explanations as to what Jesus, or what is happening here. Why the difference? Is there a difference between standing and and sitting? And the the general consensus is that there there is. There's a lot of people I could quote, I'll, I'll quote too. Ambrose says, Jesus was standing as his advocate. 
He was standing as though anxious that he might help his athlete Stephen in his conflict. He was standing as though ready to crown his martyr. Charles Spurgeon says, similarly, one of the old fathers says it was as though the Lord Jesus stood up in horror at the deed which was being done. As though he were about to interpose to help his servant die or to deliver him out of their hands. He stands up actively sympathizing with his witnessing, his, his suffering witness. Jesus is no distant ruling deity, uncaring and unfeeling about the suffering of Stephen. And so rather than seeing him seated merely as ruler and judge, he sees him standing as his advocate. Stephen, standing for Jesus as his witness, sees Jesus standing for him as his advocate before the corrupt and wicked council. And we're told, then, that they, they just couldn't bear to hear it. So they rush him and they stone him. They begin hurling rocks at him, giant rocks, to murder him. And those who were witnessing against him laid their, their garments as a witness against him at the feet of a man named Saul. And as we'll see later, this day had a great impact on Saul. But for now, Saul was a man full of rage and hatred. More on Saul in a minute. I'm going to end with this about Stephen and his, his life here. Stephen, his life and his death were full of Christ. And so he cries out to God, but to whom does he speak? Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he asks him, Lord, forgive these men. Do not hold this sin against them. And then he succumbs to the fatal stones and he's welcomed into the arms of his advocate and his king, the first martyr of the Christian church. Well, fourthly, very briefly, before we make some application, in the beginning of chapter 8, we're told in the opening three verses that this man Saul approved of the execution. And this word approved, uh, it, it carries some sense of not just like an official approval of good job, but of, of delight. He was, he was excited, even ecstatic over this execution. And, and on that day, he began to lead a great persecution against the church there in Jerusalem and beyond. And he would drag people out of their homes. He would throw them into prison. And yet, the result of that is astonishing. Luke writes in verse 2. No, verse 1. They were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. If you want to talk about a plan failing, Paul, Saul's plan here was an utter failure. This is exactly 
what Jesus had said would happen. You will be my witnesses here. And then you will go to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so this moment, what would have easily been the darkest, most frightful day of the life of the church since the death of Christ, it was the very thing that God used, as we will see in the weeks coming, to send His message, His gospel, to the ends of the earth. And so I want to wrap up here with just two points of application. First, regarding the message of Stephen. We must see what Stephen teaches here. We must see that it is the same essential point that was made in chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit came upon the church. God is not inherently bound to a physical temple or a physical building. The temple in the Old Testament, was a picture. It was a foreshadowing. It was a type. A type of what? A type of Christ. Jesus is the true temple. And all who are united to Him by faith, we become part of this temple, as Peter says, as living stones. And we are indwelled by the same Spirit who indwells Jesus. And we see this point made a bit further in the prayers that Stephen offers just before he dies. Jesus is, according to these prayers, the fulfillment of all that the temple promised. And here's what I mean. The temple system, if you think about all that it was about, all that it was for, in the Old Testament, what was, it, what was its purpose or its function in the life of Israel. It was about mediating the forgiveness of God and mediating the presence of God. With the sacrifices and the prayers, it was about receiving a, a, te- a kind of temporary forgiveness then, foreshadowing the forgiveness that would come, and it was about mediating the presence of God. And here, this is exactly what Stephen seeks at his death. Two things from the Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit and forgive these men. He wants the presence of God and forgiveness of sins. And so, if this is true of the temple, the the central item, figure of the Old Testament, it's, it's true of all of the Old Testament. And so what Stephen teaches us here is that he shows us that every word of the Old Testament pointed forward to Jesus and anticipated His coming. And so the question for for all of us this morning, friends, do you love your Old Testaments like Stephen did? And more importantly, do you love the One of whom it speaks? Have you been united to Jesus by faith? Or are you more like the Sanhedrin and love external show and religious language and formalism, but have no heart for God? My prayer is that if there is anyone here who doesn't have a heart for Jesus, but you've contented yourself with dead religiosity, I pray that God would open your eyes and your heart, that He would give you the ability to see Christ in the gospel, and I pray that you would flee, you would fly to Jesus Christ and be saved. 
that you would look to the holy and righteous one who suffered and died for sinners like me, sinners like you, that you might be joined to the temple of the living God, one not made with hands. And so that's the message of Stephen and a point of application for us. But a second and final thing here. In the scattering of the church. What we see in the scattering of the church here is, as I mentioned last week, it's in some sense God's vision for church growth and expansion. Back in Acts 1.8, as we said, God's plan that He told them about involved suffering. They were to be His witnesses witnessing through suffering. And so this is not, this is surely not what the, the apostles and the early disciples here would have had in mind. It's not what they would have expected. That God was going to, was going to advance His kingdom in the world through great suffering for them. The kingdom of man makes an all-out assault here against the kingdom of God. But as I mentioned, it is an utter failure. If verse 1 isn't, doesn't do it for you, take a, just a quick peek ahead at verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about doing what? Preaching the Word. Just like the threats and the assaults against the apostles in chapter 5, verse 40, only led to joy and increasing proclamations of the Messiah in chapter 5, verses 41 and 42, so too the scattering of the church here at the hands of ravaging Paul in chapter 8, verses 2 and 3, it only led to furthering God's plan. And little does Saul know, but it won't be long before he has his own encounter with the Son of Man. And it would result in this. So they scattered to Judea and Samaria. Listen to what Luke writes toward the end of chapter 9. After Saul, is, he encounters the Son of Man. Saul went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up, and walking in the fear of the Lord, and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So, for us then, brothers and sisters, when we face trials and tribulations and hardships, even persecutions, let us not begrudge them, but remember that they are tools in the hands of our infinitely wise incontestably good and immeasurably loving Father. Yes, it's good and right that we limit and minimize our suffering when we can, but let us not grow bitter over the hardships that God sends our way. For in them, He is often working out a greater and grander plan for us and for His glory than we could ever imagine. And we will continue to see this as we press on, Lord willing, through the book of Acts. Amen.